My friends, it is so good to be back with you. After a few months, we took a bit of a hiatus as some of our community rhythms here on the ground in Knoxville changed, kind of took us out of teaching mode, took me out of content creation mode. Uh, But we are back now in uh, our regular rhythm, looking at the person of Jesus. And so I can't wait to lean back in together. And I want to do that. I want to actually begin this next chapter by looking at some of the parables of Jesus. Now, if you ask anybody, regardless of their faith, if they know Jesus or studied Jesus, it's pretty much universally accepted and understood that Jesus was a master teacher. I mean, he was a master of his craft. And one of the ways we see this come out is through his telling of stories, right? He had the ability to tell tell a story sometimes in just a, a few sentences that would echo in the minds of his his listeners and his followers, right? And, and in, in a way that would stick with them uh, far more than just a truth statement would, right? And stories have that ability, and Jesus used them, used them often. And so here I want to begin with a quote uh, by Chad Bird that kind of frames up the way that Jesus told stories and what his, what his parables often Uh, include. And this should kind of frame our heart as we lean into this. This is what he writes. We often hear parables defined as earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. But that's not only too simplistic, it's misleading. To begin with, the parables are not your predictable earthly story where good guys finish first, bad guys finish last, and the dashing hero rides off into the sunset with the beauty queen smiling beside him. Very often in the parables of Jesus, the good guy doesn't get the girl, he gets the shaft. And the man with the black hat receives a standing ovation. An unwashed riffraff of society is scooped up from the gutter and plopped down at the head of a king's table with a T-bone steak and a glass of red Merlot. Secondly, the parables aren't about a heavenly, otherworldly meaning. Their subject is the kingdom of God, to be sure, but a kingdom packed with dirt and trees and water and bread and wine and truckloads of twisted sinners. The divine kingdom is a dirty kingdom rooted in the stuff of creation. The parables don't point up there to celestial truisms worthy of angelic musings, but down here to the creation infused with the promises of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Rather than earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, the parables are bass awkward tales with a cruciform meaning. Luther once said that everything that belonged to God must be crucified. And that applies to the parables too. They are crucified stories. And then lastly, he writes, some will go against the grain of everything we want to believe about a scorekeeping, good works counting, sin tallying God. Some are not only scandalous, but insulting to our deepest religious sensibilities. I love that. Right? So that should really frame our expectations as we look at the parables of Jesus. And we should know from the onset that they're going to hit a nerve at times. They are going to challenge our assumptions at times. In fact, sometimes they are going to turn everything we think we know and understand about 
this world and how it works and what God's up to and how things are supposed to work and flip it exactly upside down. So that's what we should expect as we open up the parables of Jesus. So I want to begin by looking at a very well-known parable, one that you are probably familiar with if you have any kind of church background, and that is the parable of the sower and the four soils. So with that said, we are going to Matthew chapter 13. Now, a bit of context before we hear what Jesus is saying. This marks what we might say is a watershed moment in Jesus's life and ministry, right? So he's been traveling, doing some preaching, uh, doing some healing, talking about the kingdom of God. And generally speaking, he is not being understood, right? The disciples are not getting it. And so there's this this shift in Jesus's ministry uh, where he's going to begin to start painting a picture, if you will, a number of pictures for his followers about what the kingdom of God is like and how the kingdom of God comes about and, and the heart and character of the Father behind all of it. So that said, uh, let's begin, uh, let's read the parable. So chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Right, and so the disciples are a little thrown off by this, right? Again, this is a big shift in Jesus's ministry. He starts to talk about the kingdom of God and these, these stories, these parables are like, why are you doing this? You know, uh, he quotes one of the ancient prophets and gives them, uh, tells them how blessed they are. But then he does actually just unpack it a little bit, just tells them what he's talking about several verses later. And so he says this, listen, this is what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and it does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground at first is someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word out, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. All right. So Jesus is painting a couple different pictures for us here and to his disciples at that time, the crowds. He says, listen, uh, one, he's describing uh, the different ways that people respond to the good news, the message of the king and of the kingdom. 
right? And so he, he gives a few examples of that. And then secondly, he begins to paint a picture of what the kingdom is like and how it comes. So before we go any further, I want to just hit a pause here, right? You've maybe heard this a number of times before. Uh, that's one of the things where it's actually challenging and looking at this parable because there's, you know, we've got 2,000 years of backstory and history and assumptions. But I just want to ask you, as you sit there and you hear about these different soils, you know, there's the weedy soil and the path, the, the stuff on the path of the bird, you know, all these different ones. And there's a good soil. Like when you hear these different soils, who do you picture? Right. Who are you in this story? Who are, who are the other soils? You know, it's important whenever we read parables that Jesus is telling to pay attention to who in the parables of Jesus we read ourselves into, we read ourselves to be. Like for you, how do you read yourself into this story? Because here's my experience. Here's my a bit of assumption I'm making. Uh, in my experience as religious folk, we often read ourselves to be the hero of the story, <laughs> don't we? Right? We, we read about these different soils. It's like, oh yeah, those people, those people, those people. But ultimately, most of the time, I think we read ourselves to be the good guy. Right? Of course, we're the good Samaritans. <laughs> uh, of course, we're the good soil. And those people over there, oh, oh yeah. I mean, we got to be, right? I mean, we prayed the prayer. You know, <laughs> we, sh we showed up to the event and got the t-shirt. We got baptized, right? We go to church. I volunteer, Oh, but here's, here's, here's the challenge, right? Is many of the people in the crowd, many, many of the people at Jesus was challenging. The very assumptions he was targeting were often good religious people, right? And when we make assumptions like this, it blinds us to reality. And the reality is that these are precisely people like us is precisely uh, the kinds of people that Jesus was trying to challenge and, and turn everything upside down and to upend all the things that they just assumed to be true. It's a big, it's a big part of the reason Jesus told parables in the first place, right? Remember, it, this should be a humbling reality for us. Those of us who would, would consider ourselves to be good religious people, right? Uh, remember how the religious insiders received Jesus, right? Or maybe more accurately, how they didn't receive Jesus. Right, the people that we would normally assume to be on the inside in the life and ministry of Jesus often find themselves on the outside. Right, and those that we would perhaps always assume uh, or maybe, you know, understood those people to be on the outside, they find themselves sitting at the table of the king. Right, and so as good little religious folks, we need to be very careful about how we read ourselves into this story, right? So here's the spoiler alert. <laughs> we are not the hero, right? In fact, as a matter of rule, when reading the parables of Jesus, if you ever find yourself reading yourself as the hero of the story, you can, uh, you can be almost entirely sure that you're doing it wrong, right? There's only one hero in this story, friends, and it's not us. So I have another question. What if the most profound and powerful part of this parable isn't actually the soil at all? 
You know, Jesus is describing these different soils and the way people hear and respond to the message of the king and the kingdom. And there's certainly value in assessing the current condition of our own heart and soul, right? Uh, because at any given moment, I, I don't think these are I don't think these are permanent states of being, right? I don't think any one of us is good soil all the time or rocky soil all the time or shallow soil all the time, right? Given uh, any given week or season or month, I think this is a dynamic uh, condition that can change. So I think, I think there's, there's value in asking, like, what is the condition of my heart and soul, right? A am I fertile ground for for kingdom movement, right? Am I teachable? Am I repentant? Am I, am I good soil right now or am I something else, right? And at the same time, acknowledging that, let's just be honest and frank, I mean, none of us are good soil on our own, right? <laughs> it's a miracle we're ever good soil. Like that is work of the spirit. We need it. But let's, let's back up a second, right? Because, you know, in this parable, as I typically hear it taught, uh, we almost always hone in on the soils, right? Which ends up being about us, right? What kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are they, right? Them, those people over there. And we skip right past what I believe the hero and main character in this story is. That's the father. The father, right? Who's depicted as the farmer in this parable. Uh, is is the hero. I mean, it's ironic. I mean, we take this parable, which I believe to primarily be about the farmer and what he's like, and we will often make it about religious accomplishment or lack thereof, right? About our rightness, about uh, yeah, us and our rightness, them and their wrongness. Um, and friends, uh, this story isn't primarily about any one of us. It's not about us. Which, by the way, is just a good word to live by uh, at all times and to read the parables through. So I, I want to spend a couple minutes reflecting on what I believe to be the main character, and that is the father, right? Oh, who is depicted in this parable as the farmer, right? And I want to ask you this question now. What kind of father, or in this case, farmer, is he? My grandfather was a farmer. He had a farm in, in South Dakota, and some of my favorite childhood memories were on that farm. My brothers, my sister, and I, we would spend like from sunup to sundown exploring the fields and, and the outbuildings and playing in the hayloft. And, and one of my favorite things was following my grandfather around and just watching everything that he would do from you know, attending to and managing the equipment to, to being out in the field and the tractor to milking the cows. And I would just, you know, I'd just follow him around. And farming, it kind of hits close to home in our family. My wife uh, was actually born and raised in Nebraska. And, you know, you don't have to be from the state of Nebraska to know that most of the state is covered in cornfields and soybeans. And so there's this, for those of us who have grown up in places like this, uh, there's this magical time uh, called harvest time, when all of the hard work 
kind of comes together. And it's this all hands-on-deck experience of families and neighbors pitching in. Uh, they're working all hours of the night. You've got these giant floodlights in the front of these tractors and combines. And, you know, it's like all the hard work uh, of the previous year finally pays off at harvest. All of the the tilling and the watering and the fertilizing and the weeding and the tending finally pays off. But long before that day is an equally important day that affects all the days to come. And it's the day that, that Jesus is describing in this parable, right? It's the planting, right? And if, if you know anything about farming and about planting or gardening for that matter, you know that the planting is incredibly important. It's something that has to be done with great care, right? There is, there is order to it. There is science to it, right? There is preparing the soil, right? And making sure the, the conditions are optimal for, for planting and that it's actually healthy soil, right? And then there's, there's setting the lines and, and measuring out like the optimal distance between each seed and the seed before it, right? Um, the optimal distance for the growing of a healthy plant to take place, right? And then there's the planting at an appropriate depth, right? There's an ideal and appropriate depth that you plant that seed, not too shallow, right? And not too deep either. And if you get this wrong, of course, it directly affects what is going to happen and what the farmer is going to actually get to glean come harvest time, right? And so all that to say, remember, Jesus is speaking in a largely agrarian society, right? Like people knew farming, you know, it was like one degree of separation. If they weren't farmers, they were related to farmers. They lived near farmers. Uh, they ate food that came right off of a farm. They know farming. And Jesus is telling this parable right? So what kind of farmer is being described <laughs> in this parable by Jesus? Right? Will we say that this is a wise farmer practicing good farming practice? Right? No. <laughs> no. Would we say that this is good economics that is being practiced here? Right? No. No, this is bad farming practice. This is bad economics. And again, also remember that Jesus's audience is largely impoverished, right? They, the Jewish people in particular, right? They were living under the oppression of Rome. There was widespread poverty. There's stories of crowds of people wandering the, the countryside, just looking for food, trying not to starve to death. And it is to this people that Jesus tells this parable, right? Remember, like, you can go buy like bulk seed back then. You can do that to like the 19th century, right? And so the only way you had seed is you had to harvest seed yourself, right? And set it aside for the next planting, which means seed was a very precious commodity. And you're telling this story to a group of impoverished people. So how in this context would we describe the farmer, which is the father that Jesus is describing and painting a picture of, right? I think there's a lot of different adjectives we could use, but I think at the very least, we could say lavish, right? This farmer, we might even say reckless even, that the farmer, the father is reckless in planting the seed of the kingdom and the king, right? He is just chucking it everywhere, <laughs> 
you get some seed, you get some seed, you get some seed. He's planting in, in all these places that a good farmer would say, you don't do that, you don't do that. And this father is planting seed like he's got an abundance of it, like it's never gonna run out, right? I think we could say at the very least, the father is not stingy with the kingdom, <laughs> right? Because where is he sowing the seed? He's sowing it everywhere. He's sowing the kingdom everywhere. In fact, in the context, right, this is a, Jesus is telling the story like in the past, past tense, right? The kingdom has already been sown. Where has it been sown? Oh, it's been sown on the path. It's been sown amongst the thorns. It's been sown amongst the weeds. It's been sown amongst the birds. And yes, it's been sown in some good soil as well, right? Which means everywhere you step your foot, the kingdom is present, right? Ever, everywhere you or I go, like the king is there. The kingdom is there waiting to be seen, waiting to be discovered and experienced. So when we go to work, right, we don't bring Jesus to our workplace. He's already there. <laughs> when we go to, into our neighborhood and seek to be salt and light and to announce and put on display the good news of the king of the kingdom, we don't bring the king and kingdom with us to a place where the king is not present and the kingdom is not there. It's already there. He's already at work before us, right? He, he, he shows up amongst unlikely people in unexpected places and <laughs> even, even the good soil doesn't look like we'd expect, right? People that we would just assume, oh, that's got to be bad soil, turns out to be good in the life and ministry of Jesus, right? And the people that we would expect, right? The people who are killing it in Torah class, you know, the scholars and the really religious-y up-and-ups and the powerful religious folks turned out in a grand twist of events, oftentimes, to be the bad soil. So what am I saying at all this? I, I think at the very least, for those of us who venture to follow after Jesus, is that we should expect the unexpected, right? When we go, Jesus is already there. And so part of what we get to do is to name what is, right? To give voice to what people intrinsically seem to suspect and somewhere deep down already know and we get to call it what it is. Because this farmer sows in all kinds of places where it would seem seeds would have no hope of growing, and yet, guess what? The father still chooses to sow the seed there. <laughs> in the least likely places, amongst the least likely of people. Right, and as we we'll see in the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we see throughout human history, the harvest not only grows in the good soil, but it also seems to grow in some of the least likely places. You know, and, and lastly, I think I'd just say this, you know, is that praise God he doesn't just sow in the good soil, you know? Because none of us are by nature good soil when left to ourselves. Like it takes a supernatural work of the Spirit to turn any of our hard hearts and unfertile rocky soil and thorny insides 
into good soil where the kingdom can grow. So thank God, praise God, that he doesn't just sow in the good stuff, but he sows it everywhere. And he's in the business of turning hard, rocky, thorny soil into the good stuff. Oh, and by the way, did you happen to notice what Jesus tells us to do in this parable? Do you catch that? What he tells us to go and do? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Jesus doesn't tell us to do anything in this parable, right? I mean, talk about offending our religious sensibilities. <laughs> because according to Jesus, at least in this parable, our primary role in this work of the kingdom and in what God is doing to take history to its true end is to try not to get in the way. Because the father plants the seeds of the gospel, already done, right? The, the seeds of the kingdom of Jesus, the living word everywhere. And including, as we said, some of the least likely places, unexpected places, and it's going to grow where it's going to grow. The father is just that good. He sows the good news of the king and his kingdom along the path. Yeah, he does. He sows it in the rocky places. Yep, he does. He sows it among the thorns. Yep, he does. And even in the good soil too. So praise God, the true hero, the father, the true hero of this story. So I want to close with one last quote by our man Bird, because I think it sums us up well. He writes this. The only hero of the parables is the messianic madman who gives away the gold of forgiveness like it's candy, who hides oceans of grace in a drop of faith, and who continually crowns the least, the little, and the lifeless. There are many stories, but really just one story, the parable of the God who won't turn his back on humanity, who keeps on pursuing lost sheep throwing parties for runaways, eating and drinking with social and religious pariahs. It's the old, old story of the friend of sinners who would rather lose heaven and earth than one of his children. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs> <laughs>